Welcome to a special episode at Halloween where Ken and Neil talk to a group of students about ghosts and hauntings. We're going to start off by just giving you a little bit of information about who we are. I'll talk first and then Ken will come in with some information. My name's Dr Neil Dagnall and I'm located in the psychology department at Manchester Metropolitan University. I've been at Manchester Metropolitan University for 23 years and during much of that period uh, have been interested in the paranormal, in the anomalous and the unusual. And I've always been interested in that topic, going back to early childhood when my school teachers used to talk about things like the Amityville Horror and we used to watch Scooby-Doo and programmes like The Amazing Creskin. So the anomalous always interested me, but around 2000, we had some colleagues who were running a paranormal course and one of them left and I had the opportunity to teach on the course and then the other one retired. So we've been running the course for 20 years. And as part of that, um, we've developed an interest in research activities. Mainly, it started off as an interest in, in, in doing things for the students so we could engage students in activities. And also so we could have demonstrations that people could take part in. And then since then, we've become quite active in terms of writing, in terms of producing material. So that's a little bit about me, Ken. Hello. Hi, everybody. Happy Halloween, if, if you support Halloween. Hi, Neil. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. I hope everybody's OK. Um, yeah, just to add to what Neil said. Um, yeah, I'm Dr. Kenneth Drinkwater, PhD. Uh, I'm currently a senior lecturer in research and uh, psychology in the Department of Psychology. Um, I've been in MMU um, for the most part of 20 years on and off. And also prior to that, I was doing art and design in the 1990s at Manchester Poly. So I, I'm um, a stalwart of uh, MMU and uh, the Polytechnic and then the university. So I know a bit about it. Um, I kind of branched into the anomalistic and parapsychological world. Um, I, I'm similar to Neil in a way um, because of the interest I had in it from reading stories, seeing cartoons, um, you know, an, an element of things. You know, there's lots of popular fictional characters which have really led me to think about this in, in a way a bit deeper. So, like, you know, Count Duckula, um, you know, Scooby-Doo, uh, the Funky Phantom. Cartoons were really sort of a, a big thing when I was a child. So when you watch these things and you grow up, there is an influence there within the paranormal. Also, you know, films for me uh, are very important. I actually think I'm a, a kind of really top film critic, but Neil would, would uh, disagree with that, <laughs> just as I promote the films I like. <laughs> um, I certainly would after the midsummer disaster. <laughs> um, but these th th films uh, make it very popular in terms of the paranormal and the anomalous. So things like Paranorman and Ghost with Patrick Swayze and Ghostbusters um, have really put the, the sort of this on the map in the 1990s. Um, but there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of interest in it in terms of how um, we might have conducted research over these sort of 10, 15 years of doing research. Um, I mean, again, credit to Neil and to, and to Gary Munley, the person who was running the course before Neil. Um, but I, I've taken it on board over the last, what, 10 years or so with Neil's help. Um, and, and, from, and from about 2006 onwards, we've been conducting research in, in a range of cognitive processing, looking at the anomalistic and uh, the paranormal. So it's been quite an interesting journey, hasn't it, Neil? 
It certainly has, and it's taken us to a number of places. I've just put on the slide here so that people can just get a feel and a flavour for the sorts of things we do. So as well as producing academic papers, we also write accessible pieces. So you can see in the bottom there the conversation and the conversation is where you do things like little explainers for people. So you, you give the general population bits of information about conspiracies, poltergeists, ghosts and haunting. And through that accessible work and promoting interest in the, in the paranormal and the anomalous, we've also been picked up by the mainstream news, such as the Independent, the Express have carried some stuff on the near-death experience. And then we've done famous podcasts like the Jim Harold one, where we talked about paranormal research in universities, didn't we, Ken? Yeah, we did. Yeah, we've also had um, numerous uh, invites and we've, we've taken part in, in talk shows on the BBC, um, local BBC as well across the country, discussing a range of paranormal topics, um, which have also been really, really great to talk to the public about this subject. Yeah, it's fa it's absolutely fascinating. And um, because we'd reached a landmark in terms of the course running for 20 years, the Times Higher, which you can see there, heartbeats and spreadsheets researching the psychology of the paranormal they kindly interviewed us and talked about our experiences of developing teaching the paranormal and researching it and uh, that that was an interesting piece to do wasn't it yeah it certainly was yeah i mean again one of the things to to, to stress to everybody listening is that our fundamental area of research is, is cognition cogn cognition and some neuropsychology and, and really, it's about how the paranormal and the uh, anomalistic research sits in terms of our understanding of what cognition is and, and the, the cognitive processes that we're involved in. So when we look at, say, scientific explorations or, or explanations for ghost sightings, we're considering how people's cognition plays a part in that and how we understand the world. Yeah, that's very that's very true. And and, and as we move on to ghost ghosties, because that's what we're here to talk about today, primarily. Um, there is a book coming out soon, and we're not trying to sell the book, by the way. We're just, yes, we we're just using it. We're just using it as an example. It's called Ghosted, which is an unfortunate cheesy title we didn't choose. Um, <laughs> yes, you did. No, I didn't. And it's it's about um, different aspects connected to haunting. So we did a, a three, four, five year project with the researchers named on the book there: Brian Lace, James Horan. Uh, and Kieran O'Keefe and through that we did a number of papers and then they pulled that together into a book and it's quite nice because we all come from different perspectives. Brian Laith for example is an active um, ghost researcher, he runs a society where people go into buildings and actually actively research them whereas we tend to write more about the subject rather than doing the field research although we're going to give you some nice examples of um, visiting real places that have a reputation for being haunted uh, later on and the final thing I'll say about that as well is that Kieran O'Keefe you may have seen him on the BBC recently uh, with the work he was doing on the um, the poltergeist yeah, that's right. Yeah, he's an interesting chap, isn't he? He did come to, to present one day, didn't he? One, one, yeah. one day. It's the Battersea Poltergeist, so it's an interesting podcast, and he's also, there's also a tour to uh, to accompany it. 
So in terms of useful resources, if you want to read a little bit more about the sorts of things we do, then we suggest that you go on ResearchGate because we've made lots of materials available there. There's lots of papers and accessible articles which you can download. There's the conversation pieces. We've done five or six of those on different topics, but other people have also produced pieces. They're really short, they're accessible and they give you a nice flavour. If you're looking for academic papers, then you can just do a search on Google Scholar where you can find many of the resources. And also we've had papers on hauntings published in Frontiers, which is an open access journal, where you can read the papers online and at the same time you can download them as PDFs and read through them. Because we did a review of haunting research since 2001, didn't we, Ken? Yeah, we did, that's right. And that's just looking at the factors that are associated with the, report, with the reporting and the experience of of, of ghostly activity and we'll talk about some of those shortly and another good resource for people if you're genuinely interested in, in, in the sort of psychology of hauntings is YouTube so if you look at some of the work that people like Chris French and Richard Wiseman have done it's quite interesting because there's some really good documentaries out there that are worth watching and we use those as part of our teaching course don't we Ken? We do, yeah. I just wanted to mention one of the papers we've done, which which you can find in Google Scholar or Frontiers, and it's a recent one there, which is of interest, which is the differences in cognitive perceptual factors arising from variations in self-professed paranormal ability, and it, and it maps quite nicely onto this understanding of what psychics mediums do, and also in relation to ghosts and hauntings and people being connected to the other side. Um, we, we were looking at sort of delusional formation uh, and and how people ascribe to paranormal powers. Um, with either you know, abilities or no abilities. So um, just an interesting paper. But again, you, as Neil said, you can find many of the papers that we produced and other people in, in these useful resources. Yeah, they're, they're great for accessing a whole range of materials. So if you're interested on the, the, the topic, we strongly recommend those. So in terms of in terms of moving on and, and getting into the main the main uh, body of the, of the chat, uh, paranormal beliefs generally are, are common. So whilst we tend to think of people who believe in the paranormal or the media often portrays them as being odd, unusual and a minority, actually the majority of people believe in the paranormal to a lesser or greater extent because we all, we all have beliefs that are, if you like, irrational to the extent that they're not supported by scientific evidence. Um, in terms of ghosts, they're exceptionally common. So there's been a number of surveys. Uh, the one I've got here is a 2007 survey on beliefs, the British Moray poll. And 38% of people who were interviewed believed in ghosts and 36% claimed to have seen a ghost. So that shows you that encounter-based experiences, people believing and experiencing ghosts, is quite a widely experienced phenomenon. It also, the, the, the figures are the same in, in, in America. So the Moray poll was get backed up by a Gallup poll, which demonstrated similar figures. Noting that belief in the paranormal is common, a few years ago when Ken was doing some research towards a doctorate thesis, we did a survey of anomalous experiences 
So rather than just looking at belief, we wanted to know whether people had actually experienced various phenomena. And what we found was out of quite a large sample of the general uh, public, 1,215 people, that 14% of them had actually had actually experienced a haunting, which is which is quite a large number, isn't it, Ken? It is a lot, yeah, con considering the population and, and considering the topic. Um, yeah, it is. It was quite interesting because in terms of the categories there, contact with the dead could also be seen as being related to hauntings as well. And 13% fell into that. So if you combine those together, you've got a good 20% of people allowing for people who've had, say, both experiences who have some experience connected to ghosts and hauntings. Obviously, more common experiences are things like extrasensory perception, which is the idea that you can pick up on what other people are thinking. The classic example of extrasensory perception is that I'm thinking about somebody, I'm sat there thinking, oh, I've not heard from um, Andrew Denovan for some time. And then mm -hmm. suddenly the phone rings and it's Andrew Denovan. And then people think, oh, well, that was spooky. I was just thinking about him. So those sorts of ESP experiences where you um, think you know what other people are thinking or you pick up on some sort of inkling that something's going to happen, they're, they're extremely common. But certainly hauntings are one of the most common other types of experience. Yeah. Sorry, Ken. Yeah, no, I was just going to say it's interesting. I mean, in the way in which we think about it, you can consider what, what are the origins of beliefs? You know, the idea that we people's own beliefs arise out of their own personal experiences. So when we think about, say, um, the types of cognition, so it might be that there's certain schizotypy or transliminality that's involved in, in, in expressing what we actually think about our experiences. You know, um, there's an experiential side, uh, a rational side that we're making sense of the world. Um, and then there's notions of things like soul or spirit, uh, the idea of an afterlife. And this comes from a range of things like religiosity. I mean, we'll get into it in a bit more detail, but I think th th there's a various umbrella terms, aren't there, Neil, that, that seem to be interchangeable between, say, supernatural, parapsychology, the anomalous, um, paranormal and so on, which create this sort of scientific study? Yeah, it's an interesting area because we tend to go at it most of the time from a sort of quantitative perspective, which is we're interested in um, how strongly people believe or how often they experience things. Mm. We've also done a couple of qualitative papers where we've interviewed people and we've looked at the meaning of that experience for them. Mm. And, and and as part of those interviews, very often in the case of hauntings, people uh, search for meaning, don't they? They try and they try and say, well, I've, something unusual's happened. Mm. I felt as if it was somebody I knew. Based on the way I interpreted it, it was a relative who had passed away previously, and then they they sort of think, well, was it paranormal or am I just making it up, inventing it. Mm. So they have these sorts of little dilemmas with themselves about their experiences often, don't they? They do. They do. I mean, I mean, again, some of you might be asking the question, you know, why is paranormal belief and to research this area important? And I, and I think there are many sceptical 
many skeptical people out there that, that actually think, you know, beg the question, you know, why are we wasting our time investigating investigating this? Um, and I think sometimes it's about missing the point, the idea of, you know, that to be a human being, the idea of searching for answers to questions, you know, why why do we exist? You know, uh, paranormal beliefs, of course, are widely held in the, across the population, as surveys show, you know, around the world, you know, there's about 50 percent of people hold one or more paranormal beliefs. Um 50 percent, you know, believe that they've had a genuine paranormal experience, which is real to them. And again, I think regardless of these types of interpretations of experience, whether they are correct or not, it's clearly an important part of what it is to be um, human and to be considered human. So it is of, of great importance. It's just how it's phrased and how it's explored. Yeah, a very good point. So if we just step back from that, so what our research told us in terms of beliefs is that paranormal beliefs are commonly held. In terms of our survey, we found that approximately 50% of people had a paranormal experience and a small, well, a significant minority of those were to do with ghosts and contacting the dead. But what essentially is a ghost? Well, the idea of a ghost is very often embedded in the notion that ghosts represent the spirits of the dead. Now, they can be human and they can be animal. And the idea is that they interact or influence the physical world so that people can see them and make sense of them. Sometimes they're static and sometimes people can interact with them. But that idea of them being spirits or they're being another dimension where people, uh, another plane that people move on to after their physical uh, demise. That links to the survival hypothesis, which is the idea that some part of us survives beyond physical death. So that could be the spirit or it could be some essence. And that idea is deeply embedded uh, within, within culture. It was particularly important to the Victorians, wasn't it, Ken? Yeah, I mean, historically, yes, it was. I mean, it's the idea that there's some sort of spectre or apparition um, of, of a person who's deceased. Um, sometimes animals as well are, are seen, aren't they, Neil? Mm, they are. They are. And what we've got in terms of haunting experiences is it's the attribution of internal sensations. So I might feel a sense of presence. I might feel uneasy. I might have my heart might race and then ex externally witnessed phenomena. It's it's taking the internal and the external phenomena, putting it together and then deciding that it's due to spirit activity. And that essentially is what encounter based experiences are. It's how people choose to explain the way they feel and what happens within the physical environment. And how they attribute that. So do they think it's got mundane causes or do they think it's paranormal in nature? And these things are quite difficult to to measure. So just to give you a little bit of uh, history and fun, because we've also got a ghost kit, haven't we? We have, yeah. <laughs> I have the ghost kit at home, yes. Yeah. And the sorts of things you include in a ghost kit, because remember, it's very difficult to objectively directly measure ghost activity. So what your typical sort of ghost hunting kit involves is a digital recorder, 
a digital camera, electronic temperature measures, a computer to log light and temperature fluctuations, vibration sensors because you want to see if things and objects are being moved, doors are being opened, those sorts of activities, and then electromagnetic measures because very often ghostly activity is associated with changes in electromagnetic energy. So the idea is that my, my um, e, EMF will start to show changes and that those changes will represent something to do with ghosts. Mm. That can, and also you can measure things like positive ions and you can have infrared and you can also measure infrasound as well to see whether there's there's noises that are imperceptible in the environment that could influence people, whether they're present or absent. You've done some work on infrasound, haven't you, Ken? Yeah, we had a couple of students about um, probably about six, seven years ago, actually, that wanted to develop um, an infrasound study. And uh, we, we had the technicians build um had like a, a speaker attached to a wooden box, which is basically creating a speaker within a box. Um, but there was a lot of science involved in terms of the cone that was emitted from the speaker uh, to, to, to recreate um, infrasound in a, in a booth that we had at the old building. So it, was, it was a long time ago. And um, we tried to recreate this sort of um, a study with the experimental condition of infrasound versus no infrasound to see if it had, a, had an effect on, on the uh, percipients as they took part in some sort of observational study. It was viewing, you know, the, the kind of haunted house on a, on a video we had for five minutes. You remember that one, Neil? Yeah. Yeah. And we found we found some significant results, but obviously because of the lack of controls and the fact that it was exploratory, we couldn't do anything with it, really, could we? No, not really. Not really. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, thinking about the types of factors though, that influence um, our own perception of the world. Um, it's it's about the sort of the ambient variables I think that that go hand in hand with how we um, assess using our five senses. Although some people would argue we have a sixth and a seventh sense, um, but it's really you know thinking about the em embedded static cues that might exist. You know like lighting levels, air quality, temperature, so on. I mean Neil's already mentioned infrasound, uh, and at the same time there's also electromagnetic fields that are contained and, and vibrations that we don't hear through infrasound, but are obviously um, affected in, in the spaces that we um, we visit and we, and we occupy. So that yeah. can itself also make a change to the way we might perceive uh, the world around us. Yeah, and that's what a historical ghost kit looked like. Um, you know, the, you had a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder, a photo, uh, a camera, I forgot what one was called then, <laughs> <laughs> a, a torch. You might have powder for uh, to see whether people were moving around in the background. Talcum so you put, powder, yeah. put things like talcum powder in doorways, even string and things like that to make sure that exits were sealed. That kit there is the famous kit used by Harry Price, who was a very famous um, parapsychologist, if you like, uh, investigator of the paranormal who for a time lived at Borley Rectory, which is the photo there, which was regarded as the most haunted house uh, in Britain at one point. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a while. And then, of course, here's a much slightly more recent kit, although this photo is now so old that some of that technology looks, uh, you know, 
looks a little uh, dated. But we've got the motion sensor, we've got a static meter, we've got a laser thermometer so we can look at temperature changes, we've got something to look at the air quality, we've got various sound recording devices, EMF, walkie-talkies so that we can keep in contact. Ken can be <laughs> at one end of the building, I can be over. <laughs> And then what we've got at the bottom there is we've got a Ouija board that some um, paranormal investigators use to try and contact spirits. We were talking to a chap the other day who attended the visit, uh, the paranormal meeting that had been kindly arranged by a couple of our PhD students. And he was talking about the use of the Ouija board, wasn't he? He was, yeah. yeah. And he mentioned trigger objects as well, which is the bottom right with that cross and those keys. But yeah. they're left in rooms that couldn't possibly be accessed by normal means. And then when they come back in and check hours later, something's moved, something's happened. Yeah, and there's a really fascinating one that occurred at Derby Jail that you can see on Most Haunted, where they used a trigger object that looked like the wooden crucifix there. Mm -hmm. And they, they put it in the cell on a piece of paper. They drew round it so they could see where it moved. And then they locked the cell door. And they had a time lapse camera on it. And what it what happened over time was the object moved very slightly and it was recorded. And they said, well, this is compelling evidence of ghostly activity. And as far as most haunted went, it was as, as compelling as it was ever going to be. But it was interesting that this object moved, although we don't know how it moved. Because when you looked at the time lapse photography, you couldn't see whether somebody had just been gently pulling the corner of it. It was impossible to tell. We had to take it on good faith that um, nobody had entered the room during the period that the trigger object moved. I mean, it could have been psychokinesis, couldn't it? Psychokinetic activity. Yeah, so, I mean, I've no reason to doubt them, but there's, a, you know, the, the possibility is it could have moved by normal means. But it, yeah. it, it, it's a nice bit of film, and I, I always used to show it when I used to talk about hauntings, because it is interesting to see this trigger object allegedly move. Well, it does move, but how it moves, we don't know. Yeah. So in terms of Borley Rectory, just going back to that, because it's quite interesting, it was the most haunted house in England. It was to do with Harry Price. It documented a series of alleged hauntings that took place in the building uh, since it was first put up in 1863. And Harry Price himself lived at the rectory for, for nearly a year in the 1930s. And although Harry Price had a good reputation at the time. Other researchers such as John Randall, when they investigated the case, they accused Price of playing dirty tricks. And the Society for the Psychical Research, which is one of the major organisations for looking into paranormal phenomena, they concluded that Harry Price had actually engaged in fraudulent activity. He'd exaggerated and created many of the instances that he reported. So their conclusion was that the phenomena were either faked or due to natural causes, such as rats scurrying around or the strange acoustics arising from the odd design of the building. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a very interesting case because the Borley ball rectory burnt down. And even after it was, uh, there was nothing there, 
on the site, people still reported sighting apparitions and, and unusual activity. Well, it moved to the church, didn't it? Yeah. The, the, yeah. the phenomena that occurred at the rectory moved to the church. Um, and, and people claim to see all sorts of apparitions of, um, you know, uh, of, of, I suppose, habits and, and, and ladies in black and stuff. It's just an interesting way in which the phenomena seems to be att attributable to people's claims at different locations within that area. Mm. One was a nun that appeared to hover yeah. above the ground. So it's a very interesting case, and it's also been... I, I, I don't know if you've seen it, Ken, but apparently with Reese Shearsmith, there's a there's a film on, um, I think it's Amazon, um, about Borley Rectory. I've not seen it. It gets decent ratings. Mm, I, th I think I know which one you mean. No, I haven't seen it yet. No, no. no, I've not seen it. So I might give that a view. I might give that a view. Mm. Can I just say something? I, I'm just yeah, of course, yeah. What we're talking about. In, in relation to this idea of what paranormal is and paranormal belief, I, I mean, I'm thinking that, you know, if, if we endorse something and we think it's real, it's about something that's solid, isn't it? It's about something that we it's tangible, you know, and also it's about how we um, we understand this and how we make, um, you know, sort of make make it seem to others that we've seen something that we think is understandable. And I suppose as, as human beings, you know, it's the it's kind of the quest, I suppose, to understand real world phenomena. Um, I mean, there's a nice quote by uh, Marcus Aurelius, and he says that everything we hear is an opinion, not a fact. Everything we see is a perspective, not the truth. So in the context of that, it's trying to put into perspective the kinds of things that people think they've seen, experience things, and it's real to them. And it's not about us debunking those experiences it's about us trying to understand better in in the research that we do so i just thought i wanted to put that in now sorry no that's really good thank you thank you now as as psychologists because we we have to remember that we're psychologists we we've tried to explain how it is that people attribute paranormal causation to to events now that's not to say that they, that paranormal forces don't genuinely exist they may do we're not here to rubbish to minimalize to dismiss people's experiences but what, what we have to do because of the virtue of being psychologists is we have to look at them within a psychological framework so what happens when somebody goes into a haunted house and that they experience a ghost. Well, we've all heard the idea that some people are more sensitive. Some people will go into a haunted house, they won't notice anything, at which case they don't have a paranormal experience because there's nothing, nothing's happened. Other people will notice something. So it could be they hear a sound, they see something move, there's an orb, they've noticed something. So the next stage in that is there's an anomaly. Something has happened in the environment and they need to explain it. Now, it might be that people will go, oh, that's interesting. I just heard a noise. Could be the wind. They don't need to resolve that anomaly or they, observe, or, or they resolve it in a conventional way, in which case, again, nothing paranormal has happened. But in the case of paranormal events, people have to notice something, they have to label it as unusual, and then they have to eventually make the attribution that it's paranormal. And that's a nice basic psychological model 
of how people derive at the idea that they've had a ghost experience or that a building is haunted. They've noticed unusual events. They've then decided it's paranormal in nature and that it must be due to a ghost. And that model links to factors such as belief. We did a study a few years ago, and it, it was thanks to Ken's creativity, where we decided to uh, take people on a virtual tour of a supposedly haunted house. Um, what we found was that people who believed in ghosts and hauntings were more likely to think that this fictitious location and its manufactured history about ghosts were genuine. So you can see the way that belief influences that attributional pro, uh, process. In the same way, people who like certainty and people who don't tolerate ambiguity will look for solutions and answers, and that will speed up, hasten that attributional process. I was saying, it's funny you're saying about the, the study we did, but it, we, we sort of took it on, on study from, um, from Green or Greening when we looked at the, the idea of them visiting five main areas of a theatre uh, before completing a questionnaire. And that was sort of assessing their perceptions, wasn't it, and uh, their feelings. Mm. And again, there was, there was two groups, wasn't there? There was a group that we planted, well, where they planted a suggestion that the location was haunted and the, and the other group where it was just an old building. Yeah, yeah. And we, we found that, I mean, it sounds a bit obvious, but the variable that best predicted whether people thought the building was haunted and thought they would have ghost-related experiences was belief in hauntings. Mm, that's right, yeah. In terms of hauntings, what sort of things do people experience? Well, Brian, Brian Laith and um, Jim Horden has also developed on this, and we've done a little bit of work on it. What sort of things do people typically experience and then believe that they indicate ghostly activity? They feel a presence. They have auditory experiences. They hear bumps, bangs, moans, laughters, voices. They have visual experiences where they see lights, they see mist, there's changes in um, darkness. They can see the outlines of shapes. They also have physical experiences being tugged, poked, scratched, hit, touched. They also experience things like physical um, sh shortness of breath and movement, movement of objects. Sometimes objects float, sometimes they, they, they're not where they thought they were. And these were the sorts of experiences. We, we encountered a small range of these in the, in the, in the uh, field work that I'm going to talk about later, or we're going to talk about later on Odsall Hall, didn't we, Ken? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, in the context of this? It's the way in which we, we try to, or the way researchers, well, researchers are trying to explain uh, and, and the, the, the rationale behind why we sort of, as human beings, why we sort of generate these these things. Because, you know, sometimes, I mean, the number of times I've, I've suddenly scratched my head in the last few weeks is suggestive of me that my cat needs a flea, flea spot on, on the back of its neck. But I'm scratching my head from time to time wondering, what was that? Something touched me. What was it? Depends on the way in which we feel. Um, and depends on perhaps certain environmental factors, you know. So I was going to mention Persinger um, and the idea that uh, a lot of the things that we consider might be related to how our temporal lobes work. So when, when we, we think about the brain, 
and, and, and say haunting experiences per se, you know, the perception of a presence, a sense presence. It's maybe could be an environmental, um, an evolutionary facet that we're, we're geared up to be more heightened in those situations where we're perhaps more at risk. So therefore, our senses are kicking in and we're, we're more sensitive to the environment, you know, um, and sensitivity to being touched. You know, there's a there's an element of sensing in, in the place that we're in. So I suppose those things also relate to what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, they do. Yeah, thanks. Um, also, also, it's important to remember that context is going to be important. So if you think about most haunted, and I was watching a little bit of the old paranormal adventures last night because I used to like that because I used to go to some fantastic locations. And this is a model that goes back to Horan and Lang in 1996. And, and basically what they talk about is the idea of contextual mediation. So what that means is it means that if you go to somewhere you think is haunted and you're more likely to have haunting like experiences. So if you hear the wind blowing through the eaves in a haunted house, you're more likely to think it's sinister. And if you think it's sinister, that's contextual mediation because you're being influenced by the age of the building and the expectation that it's haunted. And what that can also then do is, so I believe in ghosts, I go into a haunted building, it's old, I expect ghostly activity. I then notice unusual things and then I start to look for other things in the environment. And that reinforces my interpretation of there being a ghost or a poltergeist. And in the same way, other people's reactions can also influence me. So if you go on field trips for, um, or you watch Most Haunted, once a person has an experience, then another person may have an experience. And then you, you see the group starting to feed off each other in terms of this contagion effect. And then once they, they have the heightened senses, then they start to notice more things uh, within the physical environment that could be related to ghostly activity. Is there anything you'd like to add to that, Ken? Oh, only that we did some research as well, which was, um... We did a research, we mentioned it before, I think, at the start, Fabrizio, uh, one, one of the art senior lecturers um, in the art school at MMU. Um, and, and he's currently trying to complete his PhD. And part of it is the uh, looking at space and, and the perception of space in relation to paranormal be uh, belief, sorry, um, and, and experience. So this anomalistic view was something we started to look at, didn't we, Neil, across the Oddsall Hall? Um, and it was about how we sort of, explored the spaces um in relation to you know sort of how people felt and per perceived those spaces and and, and encountered things so uh, just wanted to mention that really yeah well we've got some nice examples of that just to just to um, make the point in, in in a few in a bit later in the slides yeah sure um so what sort of things provide evidence for ghostly activity. Well, very often there's a whole, you can go on the internet and there's many historic photographs, aren't there? Yeah, there are a lot, there's a lot. And these are just three. There's the Brown Lady of Raynham Hall, where we can see this figure apparently moving up or down the stairs. And that was taken in 1936. 
1978 one there, Sunning Vale, was taken in toys with us. Um, they, they were messing about with a the camera. They exposed the shot later and the figure in the background, so in the far, that far shadowy figure, that was person, what there wasn't a person there, that only appeared afterwards on the photograph. And they saw that as being evidence of, of a ghost. And then we've got the famous 1959 picture uh, by Mabel Chinnery, which always makes us smile for some reason, I'm not sure why, who took a photograph of her husband after visiting uh, the mother's grave. And then in the back of the car, you can see what appears to be the figure of the mother. Have you got any other examples, Ken, that you'd like to direct people towards? Oh, God, that's a good question off the top of my head. Um, let me think about it. We'll come back to it in a minute. OK, so they're the sorts of things that people will, will view as being evidence for ghosts. But in terms of evidence, to get hard facts, it's very difficult because people use the indirect measures we talked about before. If we go to a haunted location and we record sounds, we get images, we see variations in magnetic fields. They're only indirect measures because it's very difficult to actually measure a ghost. All we can say is that these things are associated with ghosts. And that's one of the reasons why people find it difficult to believe in them, because much of the evidence is anecdotal. It's based on stories. It's based on the sorts of photographs we've just seen. It's based on anomalous recordings. But what do those anomalous recordings mean if we hear knocking or raps on a tape? Is that a ghost or is it just some, some malfunction of the equipment? Or does it have mundane explanations? They have sensations, feelings and odd sightings. There's media coverage because very often the media will pick up on a story. They'll say this is associated with the paranormal and then that becomes part of, if you like, uh, an urban myth associated with it. A couple of years ago, there was a famous case at Manchester University Museum where a statue, uh, it was an Egyptian statue, rotated in the course of 24 hours, rotated 360 degrees. And this was seen as being paranormal in nature and being associated with some pharaoh curse. It was only later when they investigated it that they found the statue, which was quite a small statue, had a round bottom and that the vibrations from Oxford Road and the traffic going up and down was causing this statue over time to move very slowly around. But in terms of the media coverage, this was seen as being the curse of the pharaohs and extremely paranormal in nature. They were less quick to report the more mundane explanation. There's also articles and research, etc. Is there anything you'd like to add to that, Ken? Well, I was just thinking about your previous question about the photographs, and it's given me chances to think about a few. There was um, the famous Freddie Jackson photograph from uh, the, the Squadron. Oh, yes. Yeah. 1919. Um, I think it's a photograph taken by Sir Victor Goddard, if I remember rightly. And uh, it was about the ghostly image that was behind a particular sailor in a group of sailors, soldiers. Um, and it was believed to be this chap called Freddie Jackson. 
who a couple of days before the photograph being taken had, had sadly died after walking into a propeller uh, on a plane. So when they view the photograph, they can see his face clearly within all the other troops, which is quite an eerie one from the night from I think it's 1918, 1919, I think, First World War. Yeah, and you can um, see that on the Internet, can't you? It's a very I think you famous. can find that one. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's another I think there's another one. Um, things from the 1950s and 60s There's quite a few which relate. I can't remember the name of the photograph, but it's it's like an, on the underground. There's a family of four. Oh, sorry, there's, there's two couples and they're having a photograph taken with, with, from a fifth person. And when you view it, it just looks a normal uh, photograph in black and white of these two couples who've shared an evening out. And when you cl- when you do a zoom into the to one of the chap's right hand trouser legs, you start to see the image of a boy. I've forgotten the name of it. And oh, basically, yeah, that's quite chilling, that, isn't it? It yeah, is. And, yeah. and you start to look at it a bit like pareidolia, where you start to see things that perhaps aren't there. But it looks like a boy. You can see part of a shoe that's behind the chap's shoe. Why would there be three shoes? And they claim there was no children there. There was nobody there after they were they were asked about it. Another one's the unexpected guest from the 1950s. That's another one about taking in, in a small house when they're sitting around a table. Do you remember the family one? Mm. Two boys happy, happily sitting in the mother's lap. But after they've taken the photograph, the unexpected guest is this sort of this thing the hanging upside down at the left hand side of the photograph is this sort of disturbing uh, image. Looks like a person hanging upside down. Um, there's quite a lot of those. And again, it depends how, how much you take into the, how the photograph might or might not have been manipulated, how things were set up. And, and that's the kind of way in which you might appraise it as a as a kind of compassionate sceptic, shall we say. Yeah, brilliant. Um, I thought I thought that people would also find the work that we did at Odsall Hall interesting. Now, Odsall Hall is located in Salford near the Keys. It dates back to the 15th century, the oldest parts of it, and it was once the family seat of the Ratcliffe family who lived there for more than 300 years. Since its sale in 1662, it's had various functions. It's been a men's club, a school for the clergy, a radio station. And in the 80s, I think it was, uh, Salford Council decided to reinvest in it because I went to school in Odsall, uh, primary school, and we used to visit it. And there was it was in a terrible state of disrepair. If you go there now, it's in great condition. So it was bought in 1959, opened to the public in, in 1972, although it was later on when they really invested in it. And it's a grade one listed building. And it is a very impressive building. And it's associated with a number of ghosts. The most famous one is the White Lady, Uh, Also, there's a figure of a young girl often seen on the stairs. There's a wispy vapour in one of the bedrooms. And that's a sort of vista of what the hall looks like. It's a wonderful place, isn't it, Ken? It is, yeah. Um, It's one of those things from like the the 14th, 15th century that that was built. uh, And it has a a really sort of vibrant history. It used to be sort of, um, they used to have two wings. what What you see when you go now is just one of the wings because yeah. I think I think probably about 100, 200 years ago, one of the wings was actually taken down, and uh, that creates one of the most eerie parts of the uh, one of the chambers uh, upstairs, where it, so it seems to go to a blank wall, and that's yeah. where people have seen and f- felt lots of sightings of things coming through the wall and so on. Yeah, and they've got a ghost cam as well, haven't they? Yeah. And, and what we did was um, it, it was mainly Ken and Fabrizio, who you can see mentioned on the slide there, who's from interior design. 
They wanted to explore the perceptions and feelings of people who went to Odsall Hall and particularly interested in how the architectural features and general environment affected people's feelings. And we were kindly assisted in that by David Potts and Carolyn Storr at the time and the Paranormal Society and Ken organised a number of visits there. On one of them, because there, there were several visits, weren't there, Ken? Yeah, yeah, lots, yeah. But on one of them, we had about 30 people attend and the attendees divided into small groups and explored locations within the hall. And what we asked them to do was we asked them to report unusual sensations associated with particular rooms. And what we can see here is Ken doing the briefing and the debriefing. So at the beginning, they had a little chat about be careful when you're walking around the building. This is how we want you to do it. And then, then at the end, we came together and we discussed our experiences. And what we had was we had eight locations. Four of them were haunted and four of them were not associated with ghostly activity. You spent a lot of time doing the research for that, didn't you, Ken? Yeah, I mean, it was, I was just touched on it before, before you brought it back up again, but it was this idea of looking at the scientific study um, of, of fear, fascination and fantasy, and, and the idea that we could measure psychological and parapsychological perceptions and cognitions within this sort of um, haunted location. And we... Yeah. Part of the map was to it was to give people these eight locations, and we we randomly assigned four of them to being sort of a sort of spooky origin. Something's occurred, and four that were just uh, just randomly selected without any knowledge of them. And then well, we wanted people to explore. Sorry, go on. I was going to say the the, the star chamber, the great hall, the great chamber, and the roof space are areas where people have typically reported ghost ghostly yeah. activity, aren't they? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Although, although, of course, you know, in some of the other areas like the kitchen area, um, I think historically there's been the odd account, but they're the main areas where where people have experienced things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it relates to directly to two hypotheses, doesn't it? But what we try to invest, you know, those that believe in paranormal phenomena will be more likely to experience unusual phenomena and attribute this to paranormal activity or some sort of paranormal occurrence yeah. or happening. Well, with the main area of ghostly activity, in addition to the star chamber, the great hall, the great chamber um, and the roof space, because the roof space in recent time has been renovated. So that's become a sort of epicentre of paranormal activity is the Italian plaster room, isn't it? Mm. Which we weren't allowed to go into because it's no, that's too right. fragile. Yeah, yeah. So I've put some pictures here so people get a feel for it and we'll, we'll look at those rooms in a bit. It is, I just, can I just say, it is, it's run by a charity and it's only a few miles from actually where the Brooks building is, MMU. So if you went into Salford to find, or just you find it on, online, do go and pay them a visit. It's free entry, I think, and you can just leave a donation when you leave because I think it, they do need charitable support, but uh, yeah, it's a great place to see. So it's well worth a visit. And what we found was, was, was generally, because if we look at the characteristics there, generally the haunted locations were the places where people had the greatest sensations, with the exception of the kitchen. The kitchen had a lot going on in it because it was artificially heated, wasn't it? So you walked in there and it was roasting. So immediately you filled in the temperature thing, saying, yes, I sensed a change in temperature. Mm. 
In terms of unusual phenomena, though, if we look at the unusual phenomena, we can see that the roof space is where most people reported ghost, ghostly type sensations, as they did in the Great Chamber and the Star Chamber and the Great Hall. So the areas that were reputedly haunted is where people had the most unusual experiences generally. Yeah, on, on that point, I've got a couple of examples of what people said. I mean, for example, there was a participant, um, one of the quotes was, I saw a white grey mist above the floor panels in the left part of the roof space. A spooky feeling felt very dizzy, like my head was being squashed. So it's unusual, isn't it? And again, trying to think about why that would be the case, but it's an unusual experience for that person. Another one said, I felt very unwelcome and uneasy. feel like I should leave immediately upon entering. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And in terms of the paranormal, the roof space and the great chamber, two of the locations where people typically report ghosts and haunted activity, they were where people had the greatest sense of paranormal presence. That's right. So, so we got some really interesting data from that. And that's the roof space and the roof space at the top of the building and the roof although it's been um, it, it's been restored you can still hear the wind whistling around and it's a dark space as well because this is taken whilst it's well lit when you go up there late at night you can hear the wind you can feel the cold there's the odd breeze going through there and it's a dark space isn't it Ken? Yeah I mean, I mean, there was lights on and we, we were careful in terms of the risk assessment to make sure everybody was fine walking around. And of course, you know, adults. You know. But in the context of it, it was the I think one of the interesting things was the number of people. And there was almost I felt a little bit of a contagion of a few people in a group started to feel uneasy, which then shifted through a few others. And interesting, when there was say one or two people on their own, they also reported unusual things. So. It, 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 it's a mixture, isn't it, of, of reported uh, accounts? Yeah. yeah. Um, that's what the Great Chamber looks like. It's That's one of the other uh, places where people uh, regularly report ghostly activity. That's the Star Chamber. And we've got the Great Hall. So they're the most haunted sorts of areas in, in Odsall Hall that we were allowed to visit. Another one that's reputedly haunted is the Italian plaster ceiling room, but because it's very, um, you have to be very careful in there because some of the things are very delicate. We weren't able to visit it and it tends to be sealed off, doesn't it, behind a glass Yeah, it's um, interesting. Glass I mean, panel. One of the visits I went to, I was allowed in there and, and the, the table and particularly the chairs are, are worth thousands of pounds. So the, the, the idea of being in there uh, lots of people it's it's not really welcomed but a lot of sightings have been in there because just out of focus or just out of view in the left hand side of that photograph is that wall i was talking about mm. where the building stops and that room would have continued on in some form and it has a strange kind of um uneasy shape feel because at one side it seems slightly lower than the other and, and part of walking around the room with obviously creaky floorboards and a large fireplace you can just see on the right um, it has people who've had sightings and feelings in this room, but obviously not being accessible to the public was, was a shame, but uh, you could view it from outside, which is interesting. Yeah. And in terms of experiences, when people came back, the sorts of things they talked about 
was the t was feeling that their hair had been touched, changes in temperature, hearing voices. Um, and although they defined things as being unusual, they didn't feel threatened. There, no, there, there was one person who felt uneasy, wasn't there, out of all the people. Everybody else felt thought there was a positive energy rather than a negative energy in the site. Mm, that's right. That's right. And overall, experiences were amazing, amusing, entertaining, and difficult to explain. I mean, that was if we were to look at them thematically. People didn't feel threatened. They didn't feel uncomfortable. They didn't feel uneasy. They generally just felt something, <laughs> something unusual. Well, well, I think I think the, the the three or four, probably three or four or five. I'm not sure if we've run five events now, but the the events that we've run, obviously there's a disclaimer when you ask people if they want to come along, take part, about you know how they feel. If it's something they don't want to do, please don't come along. But it's a, it's a safe, friendly environment, and and most I'd say all the people really reported back they enjoyed what they did. Obviously, depends on the person's um, sensitivity uh, and what they reported back. And do, do you remember, Neil, there was a couple of instances of talking to on, on several occasions. There was a few people in, say, the same family or there was two or three people in the same group who had differing opinions, which, yeah. which was something we were interested in, which was about sceptic and believer. Yeah. And the yeah. notion of the person saying, you know, I really believe in all this and felt this, this and this. And the other person was totally adamant that it didn't exist and there was nothing there. And yet in the same um, wander around, people would have different experiences of what they felt. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the most we, we had another occasion when we went and we talked to the staff. Ken, mm, you, right. you did that in the cafe. And the story that struck me as the most interesting was that chap who actually believed he'd encountered something. Ghost, ghostly at Odsall Hall and it followed mm. him home. Remember yeah. that chap? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said this this entity kept bothering him at home after he'd noticed it at the hall, which which was which was a really interesting story because he was quite reluctant to tell it, but once he launched into it, it was fascinating. Yeah. Uh, very, very quickly, just towards the end, I'm not going to go through these in any great detail. I'll just leave Ken a couple of minutes to tell you a couple of very interesting uh, tales about a plumber. <laughs> with a okay. builder. Some of the reasons why psychologists have explained uh, hauntings is the fact that some people are suggestible. So the idea is that if people are told it's a haunted house and they score high on suggestibility, they pick up on that and they manufacture experiences. Now, I'm not saying that's true. I'm just saying that's one of the explanations that was put forward. As we said before, also some people look for quick solutions they jump to conclusions that are consistent with their beliefs why is it that some people have experiences in haunted houses or in locations well it's because some people are more sensitive than the to the environment than others some people can go into an area not notice a smell not hear a sound not see anything other people can as ken said before michael persinger did a lot of work about electromagnetic fields and how they affected the brain, particularly the temporal lobe. And the idea is that some people are sensitive and because they're sensitive, these electromagnetic fields affect their brain, the temporal lobe, and they have unusual anomalous experiences that they then label and interpret as being ghostly activity. 
Another theory is infrasound. Infrasound is the idea that there's sound within the environment that we can't detect. It's lower than we, we can actually hear, but it has an influence on us physically. There was a researcher at Coventry University a few years ago who has sadly passed away called Vic Tandy, who did research into infrasound. And he found that many haunted locations where people have had alleged ghost sightings, there's high levels of infrasound. And the idea is that this infrasound can affect your cognitive and perceptual uh, processes so that you, again, misattribute causation to ghostly activity. More recently, there's been some work on toxic substances. The fact that when people go into old buildings, there's often fungi and that that fungi can cause people to have hallucinations or old books, for example, that are dusty and contain some sort of uh, allergens can influence people to have strange and odd cognitions. There's also the idea of disorientation, when people lose track of where they are in the environment, where they be, when they become confused, they again have unusual uh, perceptual experiences. In terms of general belief in the paranormal, people like Michael, Michael Shermer have talked about patternicity. And patternicity is the idea that within random noise, people see meaning and patterns. So if I go into a haunted building and I score high on um, the need to see meaning in the world, in, to, to interpret things in, in some way that has understanding, I start to join dots, random dots in ways where there aren't connections. So I start seeing uh, a, a noise as being connected to a ghost, an orb, other activity in the environment, I start putting them together and I start seeing causation where it isn't where it isn't there. There's also hoaxes. There's some very famous cases of hoaxes, such as the Amityville Horror, where if it wasn't entirely fraudulent, it was certainly exaggerated. And then there's misinterpretation, as we said, with Borley Rectory, where things like rat noises can be can be misconstrued as being ghosts and hauntings. And these are just general explanations put forward by psychologists to try and explain ghosts. And as I said before, Ken and I, we don't we don't just try and do that. We just say to people, well, these are the explanations that people have used. However, there may be one percent of cases, less than one percent of cases where something unusual has happened. And they're the ones that are of great interest. So um, have you anything to add that? there Ken before you tell your stories and we take some questions um I, I think it's I think what you've covered is, is is pretty good there Neil um I think in the context of it you might think about the types of contextual variables and some of that's covered with what you've said so obviously the context in which we um perceive that the world around us can play a part in our interpretations which which can lead to people making misinterpretations you know seeing what they believe to be something you know we had a conversation before Neil if you remember about cemeteries <laughs> I mentioned about you know the number of people perhaps that had been um had a premature burial you know years and years ago um and in the context of it you, you sort of think well it's interesting if people were around in the 19th century and in cemeteries and graveyards and they suddenly saw somebody being dug up or they saw a person at night they they might assume it's the 
it's the spirit or the soul of a dead person. But would they have thought actually it's somebody that's been buried and they got out of the out of the, the ground and they're actually a real person? Sometimes it's the it's the misinterpretation perhaps, um, and the actual context effects that that people are in, which make a difference because because the settings and the impression of those settings can can form um, something in your mind whereby you think naturally that's going to be the the occurrence i mean we touched on religiosity before the idea of people's religious beliefs certainly plays a part in the way in which people might think there is an afterlife there is something to this you know and and leading to you know people make you know claiming haunt type experiences um so it's the kind of affordance the atmosphere the ambiguity these things are all part of this when we make an assessment or we interpret things yeah um, and, and the key thing, and I reiterate, is we're not there to debunk. There, there no. are people who are anomalous psychologists who will say there's nothing paranormal and they will just put forward these paranormal experiences, uh, paranormal explanations. We don't do that. What we do is we say, well, these explanations exist. They may account for many of the things that people report. However, because we are compassionate sceptics and regardless of whether something's paranormal or not, these experiences are important because they can have a profound effect on individuals. Mm. That's right. I mean, it's, it's interesting. We, I mean, we mentioned at the start, I said, I wish everybody happy Halloween and people might be into Halloween films or not. But in the context of it, this period in, in time in history, historically, is, is connected to pagan paganism and Celts. And, and the idea of the, there's a boundary that's closed between living and the dead. And it's the closest when we get to the 31st of October. So you can see how it starts to become this idea of trick or treat. I mean, I think part of it is the way in which we might perceive the world. Uh, and sometimes we're more open to this. You know, um, it's this sort of darker half, the beginning of winter, you know, this sort of solstice or Samhain, as people would want to talk about. But I think, you know, it's do we have a healthy scepticism? Are we able to eliminate certain aspects of what could be the cause? And when we're left with something we can't really explain, then that's the interesting bit. And like Neil said, I mean, for me, I always keep using the term compassionate sceptic. The fact is I'm sceptical. I think as a sceptic, it makes me more in tune with research. You know, if, if I'm somebody that's more open and to, to believing in all of it without actually being sceptical about certain things, then, you know, maybe that's making me less of a, a robust uh, researcher. Um, I'm just conscious of the time, Ken, so that we've got time to take uh, questions. Uh, do you want to? Do you want to? Well, I've got I've got four stories I could tell. I might tell a couple. So what? How we have time? Um, the first one is is a story of a plumber <laughs> who who a friend of mine. Uh, yeah, not not a builder. Not to be confused. With not builders. a builder. That's a different person. Uh, a plumber who who was doing some work in Chester. Funny enough, that's where I live, and uh, it's. The house itself still exists and is still there. It's um, probably about 10 minutes walk from where I am now. Uh, and basically this, this plumber had called round to a chap's house who was having the house renovated. And this house, um, he needed some radiators and a boiler fitting and said to the plumber, well, here's the key. You know where to go. It's around this corner, blah, 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 blah. I'll say it's down Mount Street, but it doesn't matter where it is. So the plumber goes off in his van and goes to the house. He's walking up the path to go into the house, use the key. Uh, and the door opens and there's a lady there and the lady says uh, oh hello have you come to fix the radiators and the, he says oh yes yes i've got a key from uh, she says oh don't matter about it. just come in so she lets him in and uh, she explains what she wants and he goes off and says well, it'll take about three or four hours so you, you do what you're doing i'll just fix these i'll replace the two radiators i'll do the boiler do the test and i'll come back and tell you when i'm finished 
So he goes off and he's doing his work for three or four hours. He comes back to sort of the main hall, shouts for the lady. And there's, Hello, are you there? Anybody? Hello? I've finished now. I'm going to get off. No answer. So he thinks, OK, she's probably going out. She's doing her, you know, shopping, whatever. So he lets himself out, pulls the door to, takes the key with him, goes back to the chap um, and says, uh, OK, I've, I've done the work. Here's the key. But by the way, I didn't need the key to get in. So the chap says, uh, what do you mean? Didn't need the key. So he says, no, no, I didn't need the key. Um, a nice lady let me in. An old lady. Um, and the chap stops and says, an old lady let you in. So he says, yeah, 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 very nice lady. She let me in, explained what she wanted. And uh, I just went off and did the work and she went about her business. So the chap looks a bit perplexed. Anyway, he says, just hang on a minute. So he gets his, gets him some money. And uh, in the meantime, he'd been to, to his um, room to, to bring a photograph. So he comes back to the front door and says, uh, was this the lady? Shows her the picture, shows him the picture. And the chap says, oh, yes, that was her. Yeah, very nice lady. Really nice. He goes, oh, that's really weird. That. That's, that's my mum, that. And she died two years ago. So in, in the context of that, it's quite an interesting um, report from a plumber and whatever sort of, you know, thinking and believing about his uh, perception, his, his, his uh, intuition, understanding. Um, <laughs> I don't want to say psychosis, but you don't know. In the context of that reporting and experience, it's interesting. And then it's almost, wow, there's a ghost. What's going on? Interesting. Um one more, one more, okay. One more. Bobo, okay. Um, I'll tell you the story. Okay, the sisters who celebrated their birthday in York, in a hotel in New York. There was four sisters, and this was a, a, an interview I did with some with a lady. Um, I'll call her Sarah, but it's, that's not the real name. But anyway, and Sarah and her three sisters were going to York. Sarah was the eldest of the of the four sisters, and it was the youngest birthday, so they were going down to celebrate in York. They'd booked a hotel for a couple of nights, have some time around York, get some drinks and food and stuff and celebrate. And uh, they booked into this old hotel. And the old hotel was sort of an with an annex bit at the side. And it looked a little bit like an old school at the side, but they didn't think anything of it. It was nice, nicely decorated. And they had two. They were in rooms with like single beds. So there were two double rooms, whatever. Anyway, um, they went out on the town, had some celebrations and came back and were getting ready for a night in and then got, got in the rooms and stuff. And this was well after midnight. And the eldest one, who was, uh, should we say, somebody who was very sceptical and didn't believe in any of this uh, sort of paraphernalia or paranormal activity or anything or paranormal beliefs, um, had a really un unrest, well, rest restless night. Um, and the next day she looked really white. Face was pale. She wasn't, wasn't the same as what she'd been. Obviously, you could say, well, she drunk too much, whatever, I don't know. But she then started to explain to the other three sisters what had happened. Anyway, she said during the night she felt that something was uh, untoward in the room, that the temperature in the room dropped dramatically, that she felt heavy breathing. She heard noises. And of course, being somebody who's quite, you know, relatively resilient to this and doesn't think it's anything, she just turned over, ignored it. Anyway, throughout the night, she had some sort of feeling that somebody was watching her, a sense presence. And when she was what she felt was asleep or just awake, she felt something sit on her legs and she couldn't move. And she was trying to cry out to her sister and couldn't quite say anything. So it was quite a horrific uh, experience that she had. And when she told the other three sisters, they just thought she was winding them up. But one of the other sisters was in the room at the same time and didn't feel any of this. Um, 
And funnily enough, after this evening, they didn't stay in the hotel another night. <laughs> they cancelled the hotel after that and they went elsewhere. But before they left, they spoke to the uh, the manager at the front desk, who was uh, very sad to hear them see that they're going to leave the night early. And that's what the problem was. And when, they, when he was told this, he started to say, hmm, we've had a few instances um, on the east part of the hotel, the east wing, where it used to be an old children's uh, boarding school in the 1800s. And it's built on the same ground. And we've had a few sightings of children, ghostly things happening, but never on the side where you were staying. So I found it interesting that maybe that, that it's starting to spread. There's a contagion that's happening in, across this house in this uh, this um, hotel in York. So there you go. Another interesting story for you. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, it does sound a bit like um, sleep paralysis, that one, doesn't it? It, it does. I mean, when I was talking to the lady and saying, you know, she, she was trying to explain it away, but she said it's interesting when you saw the curtain move. She was lying there looking and the curtain moved and then she felt a cold breath and she felt the temperature really drop. And she was she was she got out of bed. But whether whether she was, you know, hallucinating, dreaming in a dream state, we don't know. But uh, it's interesting. interesting. You know. Yeah. Uh, just before we, we finish and take questions, um, just to draw people's attention to the parapsychological or the parapsychology society, which is on Facebook until it changes its name. Um, and you're more than welcome to join because we're looking to start organising events in the next couple of months again. We had a meeting to do some planning the other day and we're certainly looking to do to do some events soon. So please join and, uh, you know, participate. Yeah, well, we want people to come up with ideas as well. If anybody joins, it's not just that, uh, say, I or anybody else is dictating what we do. It's uh, it's open to people arranging visits and, and getting involved in this and uh, be, being it's, it's fun to do as well. It is. It is fun. Apart from your film selections like Midsummer. So I'll stop sharing there and uh, we'll, we'll see if anyone's got any questions. Thanks for listening. Yeah, thank you. It's been very enjoyable. So has, any, has, it, has anybody got any questions or anything they'd like to share with us? Anne-Marie's put the, the link in there, so thanks for that. That's really good. There's some really useful links there. Great. So any, 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 any questions from anybody? Oh, Stephanie's got one. You, you, can, either, you can either mic in or you can type in. Uh, hi both. I'll I'll try and talk if the dogs don't bark at each other. Um, <laughs> like that was really interesting. Um, I was thinking with the in the photographs. I was thinking about people not seeing things until after. Has there been any research into like inattentional blindness? You know the the gorilla suit experiment where the man in the gorilla suit walks in and nobody sees it. Because are people not seeing something there that's supernatural during the moment because of inattentional blindness or are we not seeing normal things until after has there been any work into that um, well the inattentional uh, blindness example is, is a common one i mean I, if you go on youtube people can see it in different ways there, there's one to do with cycle safety and basketball players there's the classic one with somebody in a gorilla suit there's one from um brainiacs with somebody dressed as a bee and the idea is that people are passing around a parcel or throwing around a ball 
and then somebody dressed in a strange costume as a bee or a gorilla walks across the screen and people don't notice it. So in reference to your question, Steph, yeah, of course, attentional mechanisms are important because some people will be more likely to see things than others. The problem in ghost settings is it's very difficult to measure things like attentional bias, because if you're in Odsall Hall, there's lots of other variables going on. So you can only do it in terms of experimentally. So you could test people's acuity in terms of their attention and their cognition in a lab and then see if they're the sorts of people who are likely to have ghost-like experiences in the real world. But it, it's very difficult to it's very difficult to do. You can't just make a ghost walk into the middle of an experiment. <laughs> <laughs> no, people have tried to create things like haunted environments. Somebody's just asked a question there about spirit boxes. I mean, they're certainly very interesting and they pick up a, a whole range of frequencies, as Ken said there. And again, it's what you attribute them to. So what does that noise represent? We did a study on EVP, electronic voice phenomena, and we basically had um, nothing there. It was a placebo. We suggested to people that within this pink noise, they would hear voices. And people who scored higher on the paranormal, they tended to report hearing things that weren't present. But well, that was also associated with other variables, such as proneness to hallucination. Just to add to that, just because you score highly on variables like proneness to hallucination, schizotypy, it doesn't mean that you're in any way psycho psychopathologically uh, maladaptive. It could just be that you're more creative. And that's the way that I always view it, because we've done quite a few studies with um, things like schizotypy and when people score high on it they, they tend to worry about whether it's reflective of um, personality problems but or cognitive issues but it's not it just means they're more creative it means they have more vivid perceptual experiences is there a way to control other variables in order to investigate infrasound in more detail um, that's that again that, that that's very difficult because what people tend to do is they tend to go into allegedly haunted environments there's a really good example on youtube isn't there ken where vic tandy it's called mm. go is it ghosts on the underground or ghosts of the underground no it's ghosts on the underground yeah ghosts on the underground and vic tandy is walking around with uh, an instrument for measuring infrasound in an area of the underground where people have had unusual experiences and he notes that due to the passage of air together with the trains going past at regular intervals that area is particularly high in infrasound so that's how people tend to do it they tend to go into the physical environment measure the infrasound and see whether the high areas of infrasound correlate with the sorts of places where people are reporting unusual experiences. Uh, they did the same thing in Hampton Court, didn't they, Ken? Yeah, they did. Yeah. I think part of it is about how you sort of, you know, you explore that environment, doesn't it? And, and, and you kind of, you, you're trying to, um, I suppose, elicit the, the, the feelings and the perceptions of those people from the space that they're in. You know? Yeah. 
Yeah, so just 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 to finish that question off, Sam, um, it could be you put people into an experimental environment and sort of create a, a haunting lab where you increase the infrasound and then look at whether they have ghost-like experiences, or you go into real-world settings where people have reported ghosts and see if they're rich in infrasound, and particularly then triangulate the high areas of infrasound with the sorts of um, locations that people are reporting ghost-like experiences. I was just coming back to one of the things that Stephanie's raised about, I wrote something out about spirit boxes, you know, and ghost hunting shows, but uh, I think what tends to happen is that, um, you know, these things are collecting static, uh, and it's a bit like having a radio that's not tuned in, and there'll be random sounds that we're making sense of. And again, in the environment, when you're walking around some haunted prison, some allegedly, you know, dungeon hotel with numerous cases of people seeing and hearing things, you can find things that you hear that then you connect the dots to. So in the context of it, you know, it, it really it depends on the interpretation of what we think that bit of kit is. So I think it's a, it's a good question. I mean, I tend to think, well, maybe it's just um, the emperor's new clothes that somebody's saying this is a great thing. I've got a here, for example, I've got a hero's bag here with chocolate in that you can't share because it's at my house. But basically I'm going to make sounds through the chocolate bag and people will start to hear things that they want to hear, that they then can attribute to something that they think is paranormal. So it's as, it's as good or as bad as my hero's bag. But it depends what you think. <laughs> it depends what you think is actually being revealed by the static. And if there's a connection to, a bit like with a Ouija board, a Ouija board was something from the 1900s that somebody invented and went to Parker Brothers and it was some sort of, you know, planchette that was being pushed around with micro movements. And now people, some people claim you shouldn't mess with them because it's terrible, because it's going to create this this open channel gateway to the, you know, the, to, to, to the spirit world. And there's lots of bad spirits you shouldn't let through. It, again, it depends on your interpretation and your belief, your worldview. Yeah. And, and with Ouija boards, of course, they were actually uh, games. They were family games at one stage, developed by the Parker brothers. And there's old footage again on YouTube where you can where you can see adverts for Ouija boards, where it's saying all oh, the family get together and play on the Ouija board. So the idea that Ouija boards are always associated with um, demonic possession and people try to lose these Ouija boards and they keep following them. That's that that's quite a, a modern origin. Certainly in the early days of the Ouija boards, they were seen as being uh, fun and uh, part, you know, the sort of thing the family would engage in. Yeah, interesting um, comment there from Catriona. Very good. Welcome to welcome on board, Catriona, and thanks for coming from this to, to this. Um, yeah, I mean again, strange traditions. You're right. Tales of sightings, as I was mentioning before about you know Samhain and, and the Celts. Um, and the idea of getting closer to a certain period in time, which was celebrated or, you know, um, from pagan paganism. So it's, it's a history of how it's it's created this, you know, all Hallows Eve and various cakes that people would have made uh, becoming, you know, Halloween, how it's transcended into that All Saints Day. And there's a series of days which are around this time of year up until the, uh, the 2nd of November. But um, it is about exactly what you said. People are open to certain things um, and it depends what you want to believe. I mean, your mind is the thing that's the construction, is the, the cognitive processing, which we alluded to at the start. You know, um, cognitions and processing are what we have to make sense of the world. Um, so how we communicate, how we negotiate, how we perceive, 
memories, of course, how we recount information. And we, and we construct these things all the time. So um, all these things are part of us as human beings and the individual differences that we possess in how we can assess the world around us. But we, we, we can be shaped by experiences that we can't explain. And as Neil said before, how we, you know, we might misattribute certain things, create a misattribution effect. Um, but it's a fascinating topic. Yeah, I mean, just to add to that, um, you know, you could argue that sceptics are closed minded and therefore they dismiss potentially genuine experiences. And then there's a dearth of research on the effects of scepticism and closed mindedness. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Kat and Kelly. Hi, Kelly. Um, yeah, ghost boxes. Yeah, there's a way to use them coined as the method. Yeah, uh, agree. Yeah, definitely. I think, it, again, it's the perception, isn't it, of what this is bringing to this and how we are using it. And do we set in certain measures and create an experiment that, that has, you know, um, that's double blind and so on in the context of creating research? It's, it's an interesting one, isn't it, where we're suspecting if something's occurring, that somebody's gone outside of what we've created. Um, they have found a way to transcend, you know, to cheat. And we have to think about this, don't we? We have to sort of consider those elements to make it more and more, you know, scientific and, and uh, we can understand it. But of course, in the world of paranormal, things can just change. Things can adapt. Of course, something can occur. And uh, we didn't we didn't foresee that someone with a paranormal ability could be affecting the test and so on and so on. And Marie, yeah. Oh, cool. Yes. Promoting my conspiracy. Yo, yes. I don't... <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I just thought I just thought I'd put that in so because I noticed the time. Um, yeah. We're... Neil and Ken will be doing another talk, and that will be focused more on conspiracy theories and Mandela effect. Do you want to quickly mention that? Or yes, my role will be to stop Ken talking too much about JFK, but it will be a very interesting talk. <laughs> Are you not going to play JFK and I shoot you from the grassy knoll? No, I'm, I'm not going to give you admin privileges. Definitely not. I'm going to make sure you don't have them. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely fine. Yes, it's going to be a, a talk about sort of JFK, psychology of conspiracy theories uh, and the effect, you know, the understanding of the Mandela effect as well. But um, I think part of it is just to get people interested in what conspiracy theories are, the nature of them psychologically. Uh, yeah. and relate it to that case which I happen to know quite a bit about I think and uh, there's always more questions than answers I don't know the answer yeah. But, uh, yeah yeah I'm just conscious of that Charlotte's just asked will it be will it be recorded yes it'll be recorded and yes what I'll probably do to make it more accessible for people is I'll convert it to uh, audio so that it's more accessible so the files small a small size so you know you can listen to it if you want to that's yeah, you can't sleep at night. Obviously, just put me on. Thanks for listening to this Halloween edition of Twilight Tales. There'll be more to come in the future. Happy Halloween!